Well, now we get to welcome back our long-lost pastor. So welcome Aaron back up. I wasn't lost. You knew where I was. I was just... Hey, church family, it's good to see you. It's good to be with you. Um, if you are new, and by new I mean sometime in the last three months and haven't gotten a chance to meet me, my name is Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors here. And yes, I have been on a pastoral sabbatical, and let me just start by saying a huge thank you to all of you, the church community at large, to the elders, to the staff, the deacons, all the other leaders, uh, the preachers, the guest preachers, so many people contributed in such a meaningful way to give me and my family this opportunity for some rest and renewal. And from the bottom, bottom of my heart, thank you so much. Um, it has been, uh, I'll say it this way, it was something that I, I knew I needed, but I didn't even know fully how much I needed it. Uh, back in 2018, Jamin, Doug, others who were around then will remember, end of 2018, beginning of 2019, I started saying, hey, I would like to take a sabbatical before I like, need one. And then something happened. I blinked, two and a half years goes by, and I needed a sabbatical. I needed a break. Um, and I'll just, just, you know, by way of kind of give you a little bit of taste or flavor of what it was like, you know, this was a really cool combination of recreation, rest, and renewal. How's that? I got acronyms for days. I haven't preached in like three months, so brace yourself. I've got five more R's coming up later in the sermon. So um, when I say recreation, you know, we did some things like we went on family vacation. Uh, I got to go visit a couple of baseball stadiums that I'd never been to before. I went with a member of the church. I don't know if he's here right now or not. We went to a, uh, a heavy metal festival in Alabama because that's what I do when I want to relax. I go risk my life in a mosh pit, and I survived. I had a black eye for a week, and it's all good. Uh, we also, you know, just did some fun things, like going camping as a family and some of that. But then there's also just the element of rest, legitimately just rest, like sleeping and having an open schedule and no obligations. I'll tell you what, man, when my alarm went off at 5.20 this morning, I went, oh, sabbatical is over. Uh, but just that element of rest and being able to, to literally just kind of sit and have stillness and, and to not have uh, as much busyness. And then really the third part, though, renewal. Um, you know, this wasn't just three months of sitting around watching Netflix. There was serious heart work that the Lord has wanted to do in my life. And, and I'm really incredibly grateful for um, my wife, Erin Lynn, for standing by my side and uh, coming alongside me and the work that we did together as a married couple. And then uh, Rusty, who uh, I texted the YouTube link to this morning, said he was going to tune in online. Uh, Rusty, my sabbatical coach, uh, meeting with me, meeting with us. You know, I had some books in my hand, like some leadership books and some teamwork books, and he hit them out of my hand over Zoom and said no. And he gave me some other books to read and to work on that really just have to do with a lot more of wholeheartedness and soul care and, and stillness and, and just personal rest. And if you want like a little taste of how that went for me, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you, I'm going to confess, I'm going to tattle on myself one thing. So for 10 years of being a pastor in the Seattle area, not a football season goes by that I don't gripe and whine and conjole and shame and criticize people who skip church on Sunday morning to stay home to watch the Seahawks. And over the course of the sabbatical, we visited some other churches, uh, both you know, on our travels, other Harbor Network churches, a couple churches locally. By the way, 
every single church I went to had someone other than the lead pastor preaching. I'm like, what are all these lead pastors doing? And I was like, oh, wait. Uh, but, you know, and then sometimes we were, we were traveling. A couple times we just did family home worship where we, you know, played music and read scriptures and just did it as a family. Um, but there was one Sunday in which I could have gone to church, and I just stayed home and watched the Seahawks instead. And, you know, sin can be pleasurable for a season. You know, it's... I just want to see what it felt like. Um, but honestly, just this, this season and this time to be able to kind of rest and, and have um, like a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a recalibration of my own heart before the Lord. To not focus on ministry and leading and serving and elder meetings and preaching, but just to be able to have uh, quite literally daily, not perfectly, but almost every day, just to be able to have time of stillness and silence and solitude before the Lord not bringing a laundry list of prayers, not bringing a whole bunch of different things, but just to kind of sit and be still in the presence of the Lord. Uh, where's Derek? My brother Derek kind of gave me a word right before I went on sabbatical. And he, that, that, that passage of being still before the Lord in Psalm, what is it, Psalm 55, 52, 62, whatever, one of the Psalms. There's only 150 of them, just read them. Uh, but just that really did prove to be a, a massive theme for me. And so... Yeah, I'll have, I'll have more to share in some of the upcoming weeks and months about how the Lord has been kind of doing this work in my own heart. But maybe I'll just share a, kind of a brief little synopsis or a little overview just as I kind of reflect back on the season of life that I'm in, the season of ministry I'm in. You know, when I look back over my life, there's kind of these distinct periods where God shaped something in me, something that I use in ministry and in leadership. In my childhood, the word that comes to mind for me in my childhood is passion. I've always been a very energetic person. I started playing drums when I was two years old. I'm not joking. Uh, we were part of a charismatic church, and boy, those charismatics, they're going to get after the Lord. You know what I'm saying? And that's never going anywhere. I'm, I'm a passionate person, and I, and I lead from a place of passion. In my teenage and young adult years, my dad and, and mom and my family, we planted a church. And the word that comes to mind for that season is mission. That we exist not only for ourselves, but to go out and to spread the good news of Jesus to those who have yet to hear the gospel. Mission is an indispensable part of just who I am and, and ministry and leadership. And I hope and pray that never goes anywhere as well. Starting at about 25 years old until, uh, you know, maybe my early to mid-30s, the word that comes to mind is knowledge. It's during this season that I was able to start going to school and studying theology and learning about the life of the mind and to dig deeper into the text and finish up a master's degree. And, 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 and I love to be able to educate and teach people the word of God. And I hope and pray that's never going anywhere. And then the last word that comes to mind really is the last seven years of leading Sound City. And the word is effectiveness. And I don't love that word. I think there's, there's, there's a really good part of it. For those of you who were around at the very beginning, you know that, you know, Mars Hill Church that we were a part of went into meltdown mode and somebody had to just say, like, are we going to be a church? Are we going to do something? Somebody had to just make a decision and do something. So I just did something. And then as we're getting ready to, um, you know, settle into year two, we get the news we have to move out of our building and become a set-up teardown church. It's like, ah, oh, we got to do something. And all throughout the years of Sound City, there have just been kind of these crisis points. There's these things. Somebody has to do something, and, and I, I can be an effective person. I can get things done. And that's not all bad, but I will say to you that over the last few years, particularly since the beginning of the COVID season, I got like the, the toggle switch for effectiveness just stuck in the on position. 
And what this sabbatical season really has done for me personally, and I don't, it's hard to even put it into words, but it's like it gave me the time and the space to turn that switch off and get some recalibration in my own heart. So here's what I'm praying for for this next season. And I'm going to be sharing more about this in upcoming weeks and months, but I am praying and asking that the next season of ministry for me personally and for our church collectively would be more around the word wholeheartedness. The idea of soul care, spiritual and emotional well-being, non-anxious, non-reactive, joy-filled disciples of Jesus. How many of you know our world is in like an anxiety-reactivity meltdown right now? And there's nothing like getting out of kind of the grind of a lot of things to be able to stop and see just the insanity of the environment we're living in culturally, and, but also the, the, the difficulties that we have walked through as a church. So I am not standing here saying, I've got it all nailed and all figured out. I am saying the Lord has done some significant things in my heart, and I ain't going back. I'm not going back. So that's what I'm praying for. I invite you to pray for me, and I would invite you to join with me as we seek the Lord for wellness of soul. Which brings me to today's teaching. During my sabbatical, my Bible reading took me through the books of history. Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, and I'm working my way through Ezra right now. And so I would like to continue our Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament series with a teaching uh, around seeing Jesus in the books of history. And so I'm going to invite our sister Sarah to come up, and she's going to read from 2 Chronicles. And I want you, it's a little bit of a longer scripture reading, but I want you to see, even in this scripture reading, the story of God on display, the sinfulness of humanity and the relentless grace of God. I just invite you, let's not let this scripture reading just be, here's, here's some words that we're reading through. Like, God wants to even minister to our hearts right now, beginning with this time. So let's go ahead and listen to the words of God as read by our sister, Sarah. This is the word of the Lord from Second Chronicles 36, 11 through 23. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the peoples likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. 
All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord, his God, be with him. Let him go up. Amen. Amen. Lord, thank you for the trustworthy and reliable words of the scriptures. And Lord, thank you that it's not just a story we can learn about, but Lord, it's a story that you invite us into. It's a, it's, a, it's a writings, Lord, where we encounter not just characters and people, but we encounter the living God and the resurrected Savior. And so, Lord, would you meet with us now through the words of the Scripture, through the words that I teach and share? Lord, just send your Spirit right now to be present with us, to fill us up, to make us delight more in our Savior Jesus, in whose good name we pray. Everyone said, Amen. During this time of sabbatical, one of the trips that we took was to Louisville, Kentucky for a network event, the Harbor Network, and uh, a number of us who were on staff all went together. It was just a few weeks ago, and Aaron Lynn and I stayed for a few days after, and during that time, we got to connect with uh, Jamal and Amber. Pastor Jamal is the president of our network, and he's also a pastor of the church there, and you know, Jamal and Amber are some people we've hung out with a number of times at different network events for, gosh, the last five years or so. But when Jamal found out that we were staying after the conference was done, he said to me, he goes, Aaron, are you guys available on Saturday? He goes, we need to hang. And there was just, I was like, oh, this is not just like, let's hang. He's like, let's, no, we need to hang. I was like, okay, let's go. And so we showed up, we got lunch together and we sit down. And again, we've spent plenty of time with them, but he goes, hey, tell me your story. Like we've talked church and ministry and gotten to know each other a little bit, but like, really, like, tell me your story. Oh, Okay. And so I started, you know, telling him our story. He's like, how'd you guys meet? I was like, oh, well, we were, you know, in the nursery together as children. Not quite, but we, you know, we met when we were 14 years old, and we started dating all through high school, and we got married about 20 minutes after graduation, and joke, but it was really like three days after her 18th birthday. And we got, and then, you know, I went to music school and, and, and was a music uh, teacher and then was playing music at the church. And then that's how things led to ministry and just kind of sharing the story. And then Jamal and Amber, and they shared some of their stories. And it's, it's such an interesting thing, somebody that I've known and somebody I've had relationship with for a while, but to just kind of get to that next level deeper of tell me your story. There's such power there, isn't there? One of the things about story is it's a, it's a human universal. You can go in, in ancient cave drawings to ancient works of literature to modern novels and movies. Every human being, every human society loves to tell stories. Gee, I wonder why. You see, story is more than just facts and events. Sometimes I help my daughters with their homework and by help them sit there and feel really dumb for having forgotten everything they're asking me to help them with. But, you know, history homework, and it's just facts. This thing happened on this date, and this thing led to this thing, and this date happened, and this thing, and it's just, ugh. But a good story doesn't just give you the events and the facts, it tells you the meaning behind it. 
right? Like there are, there are good documentaries and there are bad documentaries. I love documentaries. There are a lot of bad documentaries and they are all on Amazon Prime. They are terrible, <laughs> like cheaply made, poorly made documentaries. And it's like, oh, here's this thing and here's this stuff or whatever. But like even a well-made documentary tells you the meaning and the significance behind the events. Or actually during my sabbatical, I read, I read a ton. I read through 13 books. Some of them were novels, just Stories, just enjoyable books that tell you not just, here's some events that happened, but the meaning behind it. Now, friends, the Bible is many things. And the Bible has many different genres of literature in it. But the one thing that really unifies this entire book, the the, the collection of books that we call the Bible, is that it tells the story of God. It tells the story of God's creation and his creation of mankind to be his partners in ruling over creation and mankind's uh, refusal to uh, follow God in that partnership and all of the calamity that comes as a result of it and then God's redemptive work ultimately leading up to the person, the work of Jesus. The Bible tells us a story that the, the problem is it comes to us in a different package than we're used to. We're used to things moving at the speed of Marvel, which is just too fast in my getting older opinion, okay? I'm currently reading through the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra starts like the first two chapters are just genealogies and numbers. And I was tempted as I'm reading through it to be like, God, why am I reading this? This seems kind of, I don't know, boring. Then I remembered that I'm an idiot. And the, the point of this is, Ezra was written after the people came back from exile. Families had been separated. Devastation, generations of people just devastated. Could you imagine how incredible it would have been to hear the scroll of Ezra read and be like, that's my family, that's my family clan. The reconnection with past, the reconnection with history. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Now, in our culture, story is everything. Story is everything. I mean, movies, multi-billion dollar industry per year. Books, just books on books on books. Like, I love reading, but don't you think we have enough books? Like, aren't we kind of done? Nope, never. Even, you know, marketing or, um, gosh, sports playoffs. What's the story? It's like, I don't know what the story is. A guy tried to hit a ball with a stick. Like, that's the story, right? Everything has to be turned into story because it's what resonates with us as human beings. Now, here's, here's the big idea that I want to really stick to today, and it's this. We want our stories to have meaning as individuals, but I'm here to tell you that our stories only have ultimate meaning if they are embedded in God's story. God's story is what gives our stories meaning. So let's keep that in mind today as we go through these passages. And I'm going to ask a couple of questions about God's story. So first of all, I want to ask the question, just what is God's story? We'll do a little bit of just homework on understanding it. The second question is, why should I embed myself in this story? And then assuming I do my job on these first two questions, the third question will be, how do I live my life in light of God's story? So what is the story? Why should I care? And how do I sync my story up with God's story? So, first section. What is God's story? Starting in Genesis chapters 1 through 11, this is the section that I call the prehistory. 
In Genesis 1 through 11, the prehistory that we get, it starts with creation. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, this is God's joy and power on display, creating humans as his image bearers. What does God say? Be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. Rule over the earth. God creates human partners to rule and reign over his good creation. And then in Genesis chapters 3 through 11, you have a series of catastrophes. And we often think of the fall where Adam and Eve uh, ate of the fruit that was forbidden to them. But don't forget, you go right into Cain murdering his brother Abel. And you go right into the sons of God, the Elohim, uh, partnering up with human women and the Nephilim and some, you know, people debate about what that all means, but it's something that's not good. And then there's the, the judgment that comes of that. It's the flood. And then after the flood, it's like maybe humanity's going to finally get it together. But you go right from the flood into the Tower of Babel where God scatters and confuses the languages. Now, the Genesis 1 through 11 is like moving at warp speed, However many countless generations and eons and things that go on in those chapters. If you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings, right? It's like the Fellowship of the Ring. Like a long time ago, there was a ring and they made, they made a ring and then there was another ring. And then it was like that. It's like that. Or if you're a Star Wars fan, it's like that's the scrolling, you know, yellow crawl that goes past. And then in Genesis chapter 12, er, slam on the brakes, Abraham. And the whole rest of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, tell us the story of the family of Abraham, the people of Israel. We start with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, going into Joseph. Joseph ends up enslaved in Egypt, but then he rises to be a part of Pharaoh's court. And, but then a new Pharaoh comes, and he enslaves them again, and, which leads us to the story of the Exodus, where God raises up Moses to set his people free from slavery, and he gives them the Torah on Mount Sinai. And then Joshua is raised up as the next leader, and they go in the conquest, and God gives them the promised land, a, a home where they can be. And then Joshua dies, and it goes into anarchy, and there's all these regional judges that are ruling over them. But it's, 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 it's the time of the judges. It's literally the t- where we get that phrase that everyone's just doing what's right in their own eyes and they really need a king. And so God finally raises up a king named David and David unites all the tribes and we finally get this united monarchy and it's the good days and that lasts for about 15 minutes because David sins and then his son Solomon sins and there's the dividing of the kingdom. There's a civil war and a split. The northern tribe of Israel and the southern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes of Judah and it's just chaos and this is what you mostly read in Samuel and in Kings and then it's retold again in the story of Chronicles which was written later than Samuel and Kings and then despite God's warnings like we just heard in our scripture reading like over and over again, prophet, 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 great grace, 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 come, 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 mercy, mercy. Finally, God executes judgment against them and there are two exiles, the northern tribes exiled to Assyria and then a few generations later, the southern tribes exiled to Babylon. But God's not done with his people yet. And he raises up Cyrus, the king who gives the proclamation from Persia who says, let all the people go back home and rebuild the temple. And so they get to return. But if you've ever read the return stories, like the end of Chronicles or Ezra and Nehemiah, you realize that it is an incomplete return. My Bible reading just the other day in Ezra, they're talking about they did a, a dedication over the temple. And some people were really excited. They rebuilt the temple. It's great. It says that the oldest ones among them wept because they remembered how good the other temple used to be. So the storyline of the Old Testament is just kind of leaves us wanting. We need that king. We need that 
ruler. We, we, we thought we had it with David, but he flamed out. We, we still need that ruling partner who's going to rule on behalf of God. And I know I said I was going to stay to the Old Testament, but I just can't help myself. The New Testament picks up with a royal genealogy in the book of Matthew where it's announced that Jesus is that long-awaited Messiah. Messiah Jesus has come. He's the king. He's the ruler that God has appointed to rule over his people. And he, he is enthroned by dying on the cross, by being crucified to pay for the failures of all who have come before him. But he rises from the dead on the third day, conquering over sin, conquering over death, and being established as God's forever king. And he commissions his disciples, and he says, go out there and get the news to all the nations. You got to tell people in far-flung places like Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and Linwood, Washington, they need to know that God's King Jesus is finally in charge. And this is the part of the story that we're currently living in. It's the extended director's edition. We're just living out the book of Acts right now, getting the news out to the nations until the day when Jesus returns and there is a final restoration of all things and Jesus is in charge and everything is as it's supposed to be. Anybody looking forward to that day? All right. Now, I didn't mean to, on my first Sunday back from sabbatical, preach the entire Bible, but that's what I just did. And I'm not sorry. I felt really good. This is the story. This is the story of the Bible. And like I said, we really are living in this news to the nations part. And, and it's, it's an improvisation. We don't know how long this time is going to last, but until Jesus returns, this is what we do. We tell people that Jesus is king. He offers grace and forgiveness to all who would believe. And you're invited into this massive story You're invited into this massive story that begins and ends with God and his faithfulness to us. Now, with that as the what, next question, second question is, why should I care? Why should I care? There's a lot of stories out there. There's a lot of stories that you could embed yourself in. There's a lot of ancient stories. Uh, Some of my kids in their school have had to read, you know, um, things like, the, the Odyssey and the Iliad, or one of my daughters had to read Beowulf. Kenzie, did you have to read Beowulf? Mm-hmm. I hope to never read Beowulf. I've made it almost 40 years. I'm not going to do it now. Uh, you know, or some people like embed themselves in the story of their favorite sports franchise. Or I think, any of you guys ever watched the TV show The Office? Remember when, I think it's Jim asks Kelly, like, what's been going on with you lately? And she starts just telling all this celebrity gossip about, oh, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. And Jim goes like, no, 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 like, what's been going on with you? And she's like, I just told you. It's like, we love to embed ourselves in a story, the story of the United States of America, the story of whatever thing seems so important. But I want to invite you to embed yourself in the story of God. A few reasons why. The first reason is it helps us understand what's wrong with the world. It helps us understand our ruin, both at an individual and a collective level. Understanding our, rule, our, our ruin starts with a look at the heart, personal idolatry, like in 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11, it says the Lord was angry with Solomon because what? Because his heart had turned away from the Lord. The God of Israel who had, get this, appeared to him twice. Now, I've never had the Lord appear to me in some physical manifestation like that. And I would like to think that if that had been the case, 
that I would be more faithful than Solomon was. But I, I can't actually say that. Because Solomon had God appear to him twice, but his heart turned away from the Lord. The problem in Solomon's life is not that the many wives that he took were foreigners, it's that they were idol worshipers. He, God, had commanded him about this so that he would not follow other gods, but Solomon did not do what the Lord had commanded. Honesty check. How many of you, in your heart, go astray? This is church. You got to be honest, people, okay? My, my heart, we sing that song sometimes, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. My own heart doesn't trust in God. My own heart believes that some other God, some other idol will satisfy me, will fill me up, will give me meaning. But then here's the thing. The Bible also talks about the way that that plays out in the broader society. And we're having a lot of discussion and and even um, debate or fights or arguments in our culture right now, particularly among Christians about, you know, things like social justice or societal injustice. But the Bible speaks to both the personal level and the societal level. That when sinful people are put in positions of power, they often have harmful effects on those that they lead. 2 Kings chapter 21, for example, Manasseh, one of those kings who did what was evil in the Lord's sight, imitating the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. So his own heart is idolatrous. He's doing the wicked idolatry thing. But it says he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had destroyed and reestablished the altars for Baal. So it's not just that he's worshiping idols, but in his position of power, he's making it possible for others to worship idols more easily. He made an Asherah. It's like a, kind of like a, almost like a totem pole as King Ahab of Israel had done. And he also bowed in worship to all the stars in the sky and served them. Manasseh also, skipping down to verse 16, shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem with it from one end to another. Society-wide harm, injustice, invitation into idolatry. The Bible speaks to our ruin, our problem, both at the individual level as well as the collective level. And we need not pit them against each other. Some of you are... Uh, depending on your personality or the, the, the experiences you've had, you're very focused on, hey, we need to focus on us as individuals. Yes and amen. Others of you are really concerned about society and injustices. Yes and amen. It is not an either or. It's a both and, and the Bible speaks to both. And both are within the scope of God's redemptive work. This was in addition to his sin that he caused Judah to commit so that they did what was evil in the Lord's sight. The foundational problem is sin against God expressed in multiple ways. But we should embed ourselves in the story, not just so we could understand the ruin and the problems, but so we can understand the redemption. And the redemption always starts with this desire for a king. Human beings want a ruler, want a leader who will lead them as God would. 1 Samuel chapter 8, you can see this pattern. You know, the, the people of Israel have had a bunch of tribal judges And Samuel is the last and final judge. And he's actually a really good judge. But the people of Israel say, it's not enough. They look, you're getting old. It's mean. And your sons don't walk in your ways. They're not really very good leaders. So we want you to appoint a king to judge us, the same as all the other nations have. And Samuel gives them these warnings, like, hey, it's not going to go so well for you. You're not going to like it. You're going to end up paying a lot of taxes. 
part of what he says. And the people refused to listen to Samuel, picking up in verse 19. They say, no, we must have a king over us, and then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us and go out before us and fight our battles, which is particularly tragic because the people of Israel were told they're not going to be like the other nations. They were going to have God himself, Yahweh, as their king. Well, we all know that um, Saul, maybe you don't know this, but Saul is the first king of Israel. And is he a good king or a bad king? Sound City Bible Church? Bad. He is what in the Hebrew is referred to as a stinker. So God raises up who? Who is the man after God's own heart that, that God raises up? David. Good job. And God promises David. He says, David, you're going to have someone from your family line will always rule over the house of Israel. And in the immediate context, it it sounds like it'll be a promise about Solomon, but it goes bigger because God says, no, it's going to be for all eternity. You can read about that in in 2 Samuel chapter 7, but it's actually one of these multiple repeated times. You keep seeing this promise come up over and over and over again, which is really important because do the sons, do the descendants of David do it perfectly? Do they follow God's ways perfectly? No. When was the last time you read like Kings and Chronicles? There's a few good kings here and there, but by and large, it is just bad king after bad king after bad king. What is God's response? God's response is to uphold his promise. Second Chronicles 21, for example. Jehoram. Here's a king. There's a name. He was 32 years old when he became king and he reigned for eight years in Jerusalem. There's always this moment. What is he going to do? He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Bummer. As the house of Ahab had done, for Ahab's daughter was his wife. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. But listen to this. But for the sake of the covenant the Lord had made with David. Since the Lord, he was unwilling to destroy the house of David since the Lord had promised to give a lamp to David and his sons forever. Now just, that's a gospel bomb right in the middle of Second Chronicles. When you're reading these boring moments of history, oh, it's just another bad king, it's easy to gloss over these moments, but do you see the covenant-keeping God at work? promising that there would be a descendant of David to rule over the people of God. Friends, who is the descendant of David who ultimately upheld what David and all of his other descendants failed? Who is he? What's his name, church? You got it right. Sunday school answer in effect. Jesus This is the promise of the gospel that God would send one who would be be ultimately faithful to God, who would rule over God's people with perfect righteousness, with perfect faithfulness to God. Friends, we have this king. His name is Jesus. And we can know that because when we are unfaithful, that the good news of the gospel is not dependent upon our perfect obedience, but on the perfect obedience of Jesus that he already did on our behalf. And he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our unfaithfulness and our disobedience. And he rose from the dead on the third day to promise us that we would have eternal life with him forever. Friends, the gospel is so good. And it's all over the pages of the Old Testament. Bill Clem, who's a friend and a former pastor of mine, he wrote this. He said, our great hope is that God has declared humans redeemable. 
God didn't come to earth as a nation or a culture or even as a church, but he came as Jesus Christ, the son of God. This means nations and empires may come and go. Cultures may transition. Churches may start and close. But God's story is not at risk. And his children will not fade away into annihilation. The people of God are an eternal people. And the redeeming work of God is an eternal work. So as a person and as a people of God, we can have hope in the God of the story. Every other story that you link yourself up with has an end, will come, will go. A church will come and go. A nation will come and go. Your favorite, you know, the Marvel franchise will come and go. Praise God. Come soon, Lord Jesus. But this, you know, it, it will all come and go. But the story of God will endure forever. So, last question. Well, how do I do this then? How do I live my life in light of God's story? I'm really glad you asked. I got three more R's for you. The first one is relationship. Living out God's story means that you are invited into relationship with God. I read a handful of novels. Those characters aren't real. I'll never meet them. Uh, I can get caught up in the storyline of the baseball playoffs. I love baseball. I'm a huge baseball fan. Probably never going to meet any of those people. And if I do, it might be a quick little autograph, and they're not going to have any meaningful part of my life. You might have a favorite movie franchise or a favorite whatever. It's meaningful to you. You can know about these characters. You can read about these people. Friends, you can know God. There was just nowhere near enough shock. (laughs) I mean, think about that. The God whose story includes putting the stars. I I walked in really early this morning. My daughter, Reagan, was just like, look at the stars. This is incredible. I was like, I haven't had enough coffee yet to like look up, but I appreciate it for what it is. that, That God who hung the stars in the heavens who made promises to David, who kept his promises, who fulfilled them in Jesus, that God invites you into a relationship. You're never going to know Obi-Wan Kenobi. You can know God. What an, what an incredible thought. Even the, the storyline of, you know, whatever it's American politics or geo, you know, uh, global uh, politics, like, you can know about those people, and a, you know, maybe there's compelling stories there. You can know God. You can contact him directly through prayer. This is an incredible thought. Robert Chong, who is uh, also a pastor in Louisville, a friend of mine, he, he writes this. He said, God's story is a story not only to be told, but a story to be lived. It doesn't just entertain us for a minute. It shapes how we live, how we love, and reveals to us God's plan for us. God's story reveals the most intimate relationship that we can ever know. Through our union with Christ, we can experience a perfect love that satisfies the deepest longings of our soul. And it's only through knowing God and his story that our distorted understandings of love and relationships can be untangled. God invites us to abide in Christ through the school of life as we journey through the dark valleys, the mountaintop experiences, and everything in between. 
The first way that you're going to be included up in God's story is remembering that this is about relationship with God, abiding in Christ, union with Christ. Second one, reorientation. Um, here, here, here's, what, here's what I'll say about this. There is so much in our world that is calling for our attention. And there's so much in our world that is calling for our attention in apocalyptic terms. Okay, how many of you, raise your hand if you've ever heard this before. The most important election of our lifetimes. How many of you heard that every election of your lifetime? But it's not just politics that speaks to us in these apocalyptic terms. You go to a, like a, a furniture store closing liquidation sale. The most important sale, the slab, everything must go. It's like everything is just screaming at us for our attention and make this important. And, oh, and it's like, man, I am, I am, those things might be important. Definitely the furniture store for sure. <laughs> There's a much more important story that I'm linked up with. I'll, and even the reorientation helps us have some perspective. <laughs> I don't, I, don't have, I don't have a lot of pet peeves. Uh, yes, I have a ton of pet peeves, but one of my pet peeves is when I hear people, particularly younger, like me and, and younger people, say things like, can you believe that such and such corruption took place in the government? Or can you believe such and such tragedy took place? Or can you believe that people do these sorts of things? And it's like, yeah, I can totally believe that happens. <laughs> Because I know about, like, I've read the Bible and people do awful things. Doesn't mean I'm, you know, okay with it. Doesn't mean I might not want to puke or cry or something like that. But this pearl-clutching, breathless shock and awe that people in power would do bad things. It's like, yeah, read the Bible. A lot of bad stuff happens. We need to be reoriented around it. It's what helps us when, when people confess sin to us to, maybe we're grieved, but we're not shocked. Someone comes to me recently and confessed some sin. It's like, hey, man, that really is a huge, huge bummer. I love you. Jesus isn't surprised. I might be surprised. Jesus isn't surprised. We get reoriented around God's story. Last one, number three. Living my life in light of God's story means I take responsibility. You know, there's something just incredible. And, 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 when I mean incredible, I mean like literally like almost impossible to understand or believe that God is sovereign over history, that the storyline will end how God wants it to end, and yet we as human beings have real responsibility and make real choices. We are not puppets. We are not robots. God invites us genuinely into his story. How can those things be true at the same time? God's ultimate sovereignty and my responsibility? I wish I knew. I don't. But I do know this. God's going to bring the story to its appropriate conclusion. And I have real choices and real actions and real decisions and real things to be a part of that really do matter in the economy of God's redemptive story. Bill Clem again writes this. He says, Being human means being utterly dependent on God and yet possessing a relative ability to make significant decisions. We are real people with real choices which is why God's story includes risk, even if the storyline is not at risk. It requires faith, even when the ending is secure within his revealed framework. And it shows him to be a God of grace and truth, love and holiness, power and mercy. Friends, you've got a job to do. 
There are people that God wants you to pray for and share the gospel with. There are poor people to give and to serve for. And there are, there are orphans and widows to bring into your home. And there is all sorts of, of brokenness out there. And God empowers us. He unites us to the Messiah so that we can go out and be a part of God's rule and reign over this earth. Now, we don't do it perfectly, which is why we have repentance, which is an extra R that I left off. But you have real responsibility. Let me, let me just close with this. I've gone a little bit long already, but I preached the entire Bible, so what did you expect? <laughs> I haven't preached 14 Sundays. I needed to say a few things. How are you experiencing your life story right now? Maybe, it, maybe it's a little bit about your life stage. Some of you are older in a later season of life, and you're looking mostly back. What have I done? Have the things I've done mattered? And, 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 and you know, the, the twists and the turns I didn't see coming. What, why? Some of you maybe are closer to my season of life, kind of that mid-life area, and you're looking sort of back, but also still a lot of time ahead, and you're looking forward, and man, has what I've done mattered? And what, what am I going to do with the years that the Lord would grant me a, in the future? Some of you are younger, you know, children, teenagers, young adults here in this room, Man, people expecting their first children and hoping that your life is going to be a certain way, hoping that things are going to go a certain way. What do you do when life just absolutely kicks you in the teeth? What do you do when your life comes up against significant hardship, real tragedy, Because if all that matters is your life story, tough, that's your story. Real hardship, real sorrow, life's hard. Sounds like like the book of Ecclesiastes. But if your life is actually a small part of something a lot bigger, then it doesn't matter... I'm not saying it doesn't matter. The hardships and the things of life, they they do matter. But what's ultimate is not those tragedies. What's ultimate is the storyline of redemption. And whatever hardships and things you've been through, as painful as they are and as real as they are, your future is incredibly bright if you're united to Christ. If all you have is your life, or if all you have is this church, or if all you have is the United States of America, my life will end, this church is not eternal, the United States of America, following the pattern of every other nation that's ever existed before, won't last forever. The kingdom of God will last forever. Ben, who's playing bass this morning, he said it really well this morning. He's like, if, if, if your life is just like a little string in this monstrous tapestry that God is putting together, or if your life is like, your life is like one note in a symphony that God is writing, yeah, that doesn't put you at the center of the story like our culture does. It puts Jesus at the center, and friends, that's better because he is the eternal one, and he's ruling and reigning over a kingdom that will never end. And you can bring those hardships and you can bring those disappointments. And Lord, I thought my story would be different. My, even just this last week, I had some plans of how my first week back from sabbatical was going to go and it didn't go that way. 
Everything from that to real serious tragedy in your life, you can bring it to Jesus. He knows you. He loves you. He cares with you. He cries with you. And yet he invites you to look up and see the story that he is writing. And so as we come to the table of the Lord here in just a moment, I invite you to do that. Bring your hardships, bring your sorrows, bring your pains, and we're going to eat and we're going to drink. And we're going to be reminded that we are united by faith to Jesus. And whatever we've walked through, whatever we've yet to face, our future is incredibly bright because of Jesus. So Lord, we do. We bring our hearts to you now. We bring our stories to you now. We bring our distractions to you now. Everything that's yelling and screaming for us to pay attention, Lord, I pray that right now, even in this moment, in this simple act of the Lord's table, eating and drinking, eating of the bread and drinking of the cup, would we be reminded that we're part of something so, so much bigger than we are? Would you strengthen us for the journey that still lies ahead? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.